IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. I'm your host, Paul Lucas, and while we may be living in a pandemic-obsessed world, and justifiably so, there is one issue that has been on the mind of insurance professionals long before COVID-19 was part of our vocabulary, and indeed is likely to be long after. That issue, of course, being climate change. Yes, if you turn your clocks back to that pre-pandemic world and examine the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report 2020 from January that year, the top 10 risks in terms of likelihood were, from one to five, extreme weather, climate action failure, natural disasters, biodiversity loss, and human-made environmental disasters. And the top risk in terms of impact, well, that was climate action failure too. However, despite such strong sentiments in that report, there are, of course, plenty of climate change naysayers. It's become such a contentious topic that it would take a a brave man to come on to IB Talk and give his views on the subject to the world. Uh, Thankfully, we found one. A former political journalist, in fact, but now very much the leading light of the New Zealand insurance industry, the chief executive of the Insurance Council of New Zealand, Tim Grafton. Tim, welcome to IB Talk. Tēnā koutou. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your uh, talk, uh, Paul. Um, so, Tim, we're going to obviously delve into the topic at hand soon enough. But as I said at the top there, um, you were a political journalist previously. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, if if I look back on my career, uh, I was attracted to journalism uh, for a couple of reasons. One was the unpredictability of what lay ahead so every day you would get up and you wouldn't know what tomorrow's news would be Uh, so i enjoy and thrive on in that kind of environment Uh, and also telling stories explaining what is happening in the world those two factors have really driven my career uh, throughout Uh, and then the attraction of political journalism being uh, this is the center of decision making the intensity of the political environment uh, and also a genuine desire to want to cover general elections back then in the 1980s. So those are the main drivers for me uh, to get into political journalism. And what would you say, looking back on that time, what would you say was the most interesting or or maybe headline-grabbing issue or or story that you dealt with as a journalist? I think looking back on that, uh, New Zealand in the 1980s was going through a period of significant transformation driven by uh, the Labour government of the time, uh, which surprised uh, many New Zealanders in the path that it took because uh, it was one of the first uh, countries in the world to start looking at the privatisation of public assets, which is not something that one would have naturally associated with uh, a, a Labour government at the time. Uh, And over the six years of that uh, Labour government, uh, it developed into uh, gradually a a breakup of the uh, the leadership changes of uh, prime minister, uh, and so it was a period of quite intense change and also political change as well, which I, I think really uh, was the forerunner of uh, the introduction of uh, a mixed member proportional system in New Zealand in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, driven largely by uh, a desire to move away from a. a t- largely two-party system, uh, to be more representative and diverse of New Zealanders' opinions. 
And, well, speaking of, of opinions, Tim, of course, you were a columnist as well as a reporter, um, not shy in giving your views, I'm guessing. Did you ever um, stir up some controversy with your opinions? Oh, I think from time to time you do. And inevitably, when you provide your own opinions uh, and in journalism these days, that's very much de rigueur. Uh, back uh, in the day, uh, you know, you stood out as providing an opinion piece as opposed to a reportage piece uh, where, you know, the expectations were for balance. So providing an opinion out there, uh, you know, obviously, you need to be somewhat provocative to attract the readership, uh, and so at times you uh, 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 attract the wrath of politicians. But uh, you know, to survive in the political world, you have to be fairly thick-skinned, both as a politician and as a uh, critique of the, uh, of the politicians. But uh, that led on uh, for me uh, to uh, enter the world of being a an advisor uh, to politicians. Uh, and again, the attraction of moving on in my career there was uh, really just wanting to see, rather than being the critic in the um, uh, in the audience, uh, actually getting behind the stage and understanding uh, what was going on in the machinery of government, how everything works. Uh, and actually, uh, the revelation that, uh, you know, it's somewhat like the proverbial iceberg that, you know, from the outside, you're only seeing seven eighths of the uh, of the picture and when you get inside you 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 see what lies beneath the surface and that was really fascinating too yeah because you you moved into the role i, I believe it was director of strategy and, and chief advisor um for the off office of the leader of the opposition um so was it a very contentious time did you really see it from the other side you know i mean like you said you, you were used to reporting on these issues now you're actually sort of in the middle of it, what, what was it like to make that transition? Oh, it was, uh, so the director of strategy role actually came uh, after a, a couple of other roles. So I, I initially went from political journalism to be uh, an, an advisor to uh, uh, the Minister of Health, the Minister of State Services, the Minister of Labour and Immigration, uh, and also the Minister of Finance before uh, then moving into a uh, political consultancy role in the private sector, uh, and then eventually coming back again uh, to become an, an advisor uh, to the leader of the opposition. So it was through that transition uh, that, you know, sort of gradually moved away from pure media and media and communications to uh, broader uh, strategic uh, positioning for corporate clients and then uh, into uh, back into the world of politics. And I'm, I'll have to say that was for the last time and it was 20 years ago. <laughs> well, you say for the last time, do you, do you not miss it at all? Oh, no, I, I think I've been there and done that uh, and got the T-shirt. <laughs> so, uh, 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 you know, I... I, I uh, I mean, I bring all of that experience to the current role, uh, so that's important. Uh, but uh, the uh, the world of politics is one that can be quite uh, isolating. It can be one where you're actually operating in a bubble, uh, and people can identify with bubbles uh, these days very 
clearly, but it's when you get out of the political environment and actually see once again the world as everybody else sees it, uh, that you think that uh, you have been uh, locked away and, uh, you know, working within the political environment, you know, you're constantly looking as to what is happening every hour in terms of change and updating stories. And, uh, and I'd much prefer to be uh, operating uh, without the uh, intensity of the immediacy of looking at that level to one that more broadly looks at, you know, how we can position uh, our sector uh, to uh, bring the influence to bear that's not just good for our sector, but for our customers and for New Zealand and New Zealanders. Well, let's, let, let's talk a, a little bit about that, that, that move into the insurance world there, because we hear all the time about people who fell into insurance. Um, I guess when you're moving from, from, from journalism to politics to insurance, is that, is that falling? Is that jumping? Is that leaping? Uh, so f for me, it was a purposeful uh, rather than an accidental fall, because I applied for the role that I'm in now. Um, but uh, again, uh, if I go back to what has really driven my career throughout, and that, that has been the attraction of uh, the unpredictable uh, and the desire to explain, uh, to understand and explain uh, and explain uh, to, to bring about good. And so uh, when uh, I, so after uh politics, I became an executive director of a leading market research company. So that involved me with data uh, in terms of quantitative measurements, but also qualitative uh, research as well for a number of re leading um, uh, uh, companies here in New Zealand and, and uh, from time to time working for large international companies too. And, uh, you know, the, the market research gives you core data, it gives you information, and you have to tell the story of what all that means to your client, uh, and then provide insight and direction uh, for them uh, to plot a way forward. So uh, when uh, the opportunity came to apply for this role uh, as Chief Executive of the Insurance Council of New Zealand, I saw there, you know, the largest catastrophe uh, New Zealand has had to face as being a hugely interesting area to be involved with uh, for the country, but also uh, bringing to bear the ability to uh, look at uh, how uh, the insurance sector and the government sector, so the whole public-private uh, efforts uh, required to um, bring about the recovery uh, in uh, Christchurch from those uh, massive earthquakes and the damage that had been wreaked. So it, it was a hugely attractive role to me, and also for, because of the ubiquity of insurance, uh, it, it meant that you know the risks, the unpredictability of the future, the ability to have to tell uh, the stories, to translate the complex into the simple uh, messages. All of that uh, still attract, was a huge attraction to uh, apply for this role. And I uh, can say that I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the, the job all the way through. Yeah, I, I want to come actually to, to the Christchurch earthquake um, in, in, in just a minute, but just explain uh, for the sake of our, our global audience who perhaps don't know the Insurance Council of New Zealand, um, ICNZ for short, what, what role does ICNZ uh, play in the New Zealand insurance industry? 
Well, we, we play uh, uh, critically five principal roles. First of all, obviously, we are, as a representative organisation for general insurers and reinsurers uh, here in New Zealand, we uh, uh, our members cover uh, 95% of the general insurance market. Um, and so we focus on, obviously, uh, regulatory legislative uh, uh, submissions and lobbying that affect our sector. And at the moment, we're going through perhaps the most intense period of uh, legislative and regulatory change uh, the sector's ever seen. Um, secondly, we are there to uh, address reputational issues. Trust and confidence in insurance is obviously fundamental the whole sector depends on delivery of a promise to customers uh, and therefore we, we need to have a good strong customer focus in and apply that customer lens to everything we do uh, resilience risk reduction uh, sort of a uh, again uh, a really important role in how we deal with consenting authorities uh, the science community and uh, and government uh, around how we make New Zealand more resilient we are one of the well the second rec riskiest country in the world to uh, uh, natural hazard loss. Uh, also, uh, financial capability. We have a role to play in particularly with vulnerable communities and our diverse communities in New Zealand to ensure that uh, those who are most vulnerable understand risk, uh, understand uh, insurance basics, um, and finally, uh, insurance fraud, uh, which is a cost to all uh, policyholders and how we address and reduce fraud. So those five areas are critical to the work that the ICNZ does. And Tim, you, you mentioned there about how vulnerable New Zealand is to, to extreme weather. And, and obviously you also referenced um, the Christchurch earthquake, which, which took place just a little over 10 years ago. Um, for, for those who don't know, um, how big a disaster was it? And, and tell us how big an impact it had on the industry, because I, like you mentioned, I think this would have been uh, just a, a short time before you, you moved into the role that you have now. So I guess when you actually did move into the role, it was very, very much front of mind. And I, I think it has been ever since. Yeah, so uh, the Canterbury earthquakes dominated uh, our sector for a number of years uh, after they hit. Uh, and as you say, the biggest, uh, most damaging earthquake was just over 10 years ago. Uh, so when I uh, entered the role, we were in the thick of uh, uh, trying to deal with numerous uh, complexities. Uh, so, you know, in terms of scale, the Canterbury earthquakes uh, losses accounted for about 20% of New Zealand's gross domestic product. You put that number on any other country and uh, you'll see just how astronomical uh, the costs were. Uh, it's not just the scale of the costs, but the complexity of what happened in the Canterbury earthquakes. Uh, so, uh, you know, liquefaction, uh, uh, multiple earthquake events, not just a single earthquake event, but, you know, actually thousands of earthquakes and uh, half a dozen major separate earthquake events, apportioning the cost of loss and damage between those events for reinsurance purposes and then between ourselves as private insurers and the Earthquake Commission, the publicly uh, owned uh, entity that uh, covers uh, first loss uh, for earth earthquakes. Um, huge complexities around how um, wordings responded uh, in novel situations, uh, assisting and supporting insureds to navigate through the insurance process. Um, the uh, complexities that arose around uh, numerous um, uh, 
issues around the uh, uh, what the earthquake commission would assess as loss, then what the private insurer would assess as loss, uh, how that impacted um, um, uh, the insured, uh, land damage, uh, the need to find new ways of repairing land and testing land, new compensation because land cover is covered to some extent uh, by the earthquake commission in, in New Zealand, reclassification of land, uh, holding up um, the uh, rebuild uh, of properties, uh, and then the whole infrastructure, underground infrastructure needing to be rebuilt, uh, and that also impacting on progress of rebuild and recovery. And the list goes on. Uh, it was just astronomical, as I said, in terms of the cost, but uh, uh, the complexity of this earthquake or these earthquakes, uh, I don't think have been uh, matched anywhere else in the world. Yeah, in incredible complexity. And it's something that I, I believe that some claims are still to be um, fully kind of uh, closed and finalized to this day. Is that correct? Yes, that that, that is correct. Uh, a very small number, of course, uh, relative to the um, uh, the total number. But uh, yeah, that, and that is uh, primarily uh, a lot of that is down to dispute uh, and uh, uh, in the judicial process um, um, and. And the previous system we had where uh, insurers would receive um, uh, claims from the EQs, the Earthquake Commission uh, after assessment, we have now changed to a new system now that makes uh, a much better customer experience with one point of accountability and responsibility for the management of claims, and that being the private insurer acting as an agent for the Earthquake Commission and then dealing with uh, the liabilities uh, that attach to the private insurer thereafter. And of course, you know, as we mentioned, New Zealand is, is incredibly vulnerable. And um, just um, a few weeks ago, in fact, there was another quite se severe earthquake, but obviously nothing um, in terms of the scale of, of what, what, what we happened uh, 10 years ago. Um, and thankfully, you know, not been sort of lives lost and so on. Um, but it's obviously it's, it's a constant ongoing threat. Um, and I, I know that you, Tim, are, are an active member of, of the Global Federation of Insurance Associations Climate Risk Working Group. So um, is that something that you wanted to get involved with because of how susceptible New Zealand is to these events and, and wanting to try and do something to address that? Well, uh, our decision to join the Global Federation of Insurance Associations a few years ago was uh, based on uh, the uh, benefits of that of, of the, I call it the GIFIA for short, that it provides all insurance associations around the world. So the ability to be able to share knowledge and experiences, um, you know, we're a small country, um, a, a small insurance association, uh, and the ability to sit around the table and uh, address uh, the issues of the of, of the global of global moment uh, with, you know, very large associations, Insurance Europe, uh, the ABI, um, the, um, you know, insurance associations in, in America, reinsurance associations in Bermuda, you name it. I mean, ha having the ability to have discussions and learn and be able to contribute from our own experiences, such as the Canterbury earthquakes, to that, um, that dialogue. Uh, and certainly climate risk is uh, one of the 
you know, huge uh, strategic priorities for the GIFIA today, um, alongside others, but climate is there, and we take a very strong uh, interest in, in the climate risk portfolio. Uh, and uh, it, it is a working group that has uh, been making some very significant strides in providing the insurance sector with um, a platform uh, to be able to contribute to um, the uh, the discussions that will be necessary to be able to transit to a low carbon economy, which is absolutely critical to uh, ensuring that we have an insurable world uh, in the decades to come. So it's fair to say you're in the climate change believer camp then? Uh, look, uh, I don't think there's any room for denial of uh, climate risk. Uh, uh, obviously, we don't know exactly what uh, the quantitative measure will be. There are lots of uncertainties uh, around that, uh, but uh, absolutely, I'm a, a believer of the, uh, um, uh, the of the one or uh, in between of the scenarios of the uh, RCCP. Um, um, uh, uh, scenarios that lie out there for climate change. And uh, as, an, as a sector, we obviously have to focus on what those future risks, uh, and there can be few greater risks to um, uh, the world and the insurability of the world uh, than uh, climate risk. And so whether or not, um, you know, you believe that uh, the worst case scenario will eventuate or the most optimistic one, we have to sit down and start to think about the what if, because that's the nature of insurance and how can we be there to support um, uh, uh, you know, customers globally. Uh, and so th that is absolutely um, uh, a mission critical for the sector. Well, I haven't got so much a, a what if question for you, Tim, but more a, a what are question for you. And, and that's that's what are the solutions here? Because you mentioned about moving to a, a low carbon economy, but how can insurance get involved? How can insurance support that? What's the, what's the role to play here? Well, insurers bring a, a wide number of uh, um, contributions to, to this. Clearly, Nutura's uh, core capability is risk management skills, analytical tools and modeling, and decades of experience in risk modeling uh, to be able to bring that uh, to the table for discussion. Uh, importantly, uh, insurance plays the role of sending risk-based price signals. And if we are to transition uh, smoothly to a low carbon economy, it will be critical to be able to provide very clear, transparent price signals about the risks uh, that lie ahead around climate change. So that will inform uh, investment. It will be an efficient way to allocate capital. Uh, and clearly, as insurers are major investors globally, as well as major underwriters of risk, uh, uh, we have uh, dual risks on our balance sheets, if you like, uh, in terms of the physical assets we underwrite and also the uh, uh, transition risks that lie ahead uh, in terms of uh, investing in assets that could be stranded uh, uh, overnight if you had a rapid and, un, uh, and not a smooth transition to a, a low carbon economy. So getting the critical price signals in place, I think, uh, must be 
preserved by regulators and governments worldwide uh, in order to uh, underpin that uh, transition. Um, I think also uh, as investors, underwriting uh, green uh, investment uh, will be critically important for us. And again, for regulators to support that long view of uh, investment, uh, you know, we have challenges, particularly uh, we don't represent the life sector, but life sector has a lot of long-term investment. Um, and uh, in order to ensure that that long-term investment is regarded by regulators as um, uh, of uh, sufficient uh, investment grade and not to penalise long-term uh, investment in sustainable activity, um, that is something that, uh, you know, we will need to work with regulators on and have those discussions. And I, I noticed last week that Vicky Supporter from the IAIS was uh, advocating a collaborative and and uh, cooperative approach uh, with between supervisors and uh, insurers. And that I'm very strongly supportive of that, uh, as is the uh, GIFIA uh, uh, as well. So, uh, you know, uh, these huge risks, the great protection gaps that exist around the world from climate risks, all of these things will require a coming together, a greater amount of collaboration between uh, our sector, the supervisors, uh, and everybody playing their part, central government, local government, deciding where we build and how we build, uh, and uh, individuals making informed decisions about uh, the risks that they want to undertake in terms of their uh, property purchases uh, and the like, um, and I think also just you know our sector too has been at the you know forefront with the United Nations um, um, UNEP program uh, around the principles of sustainable insurance uh, uh, and uh, and the like in terms of adopting increasingly uh, ESG principles, environmental, social, and governance principles uh, to uh, make. Uh, decisions that uh, support uh, a more sustainable world. You mentioned there as well about you know, supporting green investments. And of course, there's been a lot of criticism of insurance companies um, for, for not moving away from insuring coal projects. There's controversy over the Adani mine, for example, just across the Tasman from you. Yeah. Um, do, do you think insurers have an ethical responsibility now to not get involved with projects like that? Look, there's two dimensions to this. There's certainly the ethics of it, and then there's also the uh, f finance uh, uh, imperatives of in investing and supporting sustainable, uh, what will be sustainable in, in the decades to come. But I, I have to emphasize the need to transition smoothly. Uh, uh, and uh, and that will involve a weaning off of carbon uh, and a greater uptake of, of uh, green alternatives, sustainable alternatives. Uh, you have to think very carefully when you switch off, and if you switch off the lights suddenly, uh, what are the impacts, what are the social impacts, uh, you know, uh, people thrown out of employment, uh, inability to for other sectors to adapt quickly enough to get uh, alternative uh, power supply. So it has to be a planned transition. And yeah, I mean, kudos to many uh, insurers and reinsurers have taken decisions globally to um, uh, limit the amount of investment and underwriting and provide clear signals out that these 
uh, limits will be reduced over time. Uh, so this is enabling a, a planned transition to take place. Um, but, uh, you know, it's easy enough to say, well, just take the plug out of every uh, carbon industry, but, you know, we still use steel uh, to build structures. We still, um, uh, you know, construct with concrete. So we are still using uh, high carbon intense sectors, uh, and we just can't stop that overnight. Uh, we are trying to get out of a global uh, pandemic and the massive financial economic consequences that that has thrown uh, all around the world. What we need to be focusing on now is how we uh, build a better green economy as we come out of that. Uh, and I think that's the opportunity to look at how quickly we can make that transition. But we cannot make those uh, transition that transition until we get some certainty around uh, or greater guidance around uh, the kinds of transparent reporting of climate change exposures that uh, investors uh, need to see uh, in order to be able to make good decisions to support the efficient allocation of capital towards a more sustainable uh, world. And, and what role, Tim, does, does insurance have to play sort of in the wider community here? I mean, should they be looking to, to, to influence uh, consumers, you know, perhaps incentivizing policies for people who are, are doing the sort of quote unquote right thing in their approach to the climate? I mean, for example, cheaper car insurance for, for people who drive hybrid or electric cars. Is that the sort of things you would like to see insurers implement or is it a, a different tactic than that? Well, as an industry organisation, then we, we, you know, we have to support the view that each insurer needs to make its own commercial decision. So it's a, clearly a commercial decision whether you provide a discount incentive for um, e-vehicle owners uh, versus uh, others. But that clearly that uh, providing that level of incentivization is absolutely consistent with uh, green sustainability. Um, the, if you are only a, a monoline insurer in motor uh, and the number of e-vehicles, um, you know, you, you, you might have some challenges around that. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, I would be strongly supportive of, of uh, any insurer that was making that decision. But each insurer has to make uh, its own decisions as to how it's making that that contribution. That's an example, but they may uh, look at other ways in which way they can be more impactful. Yeah, you know, Tim, between politics, journalism, climate change, I, I think we need a, a much, much longer podcast. Um, I, I, would I would love to have you on uh, perhaps again in the future and we can talk yeah. about some, some more of these elements. But um, before we wrap up today, I just wanted to sort of switch base with you just for a moment and, and yeah. chat about another interest of yours, um, yeah. which is which is languages, um, because I, I've heard that you've been throwing yourself into learning lately. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed uh, travel uh, uh, from, you know, when I uh, uh, left university many years ago, uh, I did what Kiwis typically do is go off and do what we call our OE, which is uh, our overseas experience and being a, an isolated country, uh, um, yeah, far away from anywhere, uh, we uh, relish the opportunity to get away uh, you know, usually uh, uh, early in our careers and uh, spend time traveling around, which I did that and have 
always loved traveling. But as you travel, obviously, you can take a deep interest in different cultures, uh, different countries you visit, uh, and that leads you into the uh, area of language. So uh, um, now that we have COVID and <laughs> travel is a lot more restricted, um, I've been uh, doing daily, uh, I have an app, uh, and daily I, I uh, do um, work on my Spanish, French, Italian, uh, some German, uh, and even some Arabic as well. I've always been fascinated by Arabic script and not being able to um, uh, understand it, uh, being uh, an Anglophile. Uh, so it's been uh, really interesting coming to terms with a totally different way of uh, the presenting the written word uh, than what I've been used to. Um, so uh, it, it's been fascinating. I really enjoy it. Well, between Spanish, German, and Arabic, it sounds like you've got quite the uh, trip planned once the borders <laughs> open again. To... Yeah, hopefully. Uh, I think travel will be uh, different in the future somehow, uh, but uh, definitely want to get back and doing some travel. Tim, it's been a terrific talk. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. And if anybody wants to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Well, uh, my email address is tim at icnz.org. That's O-R-G dot N-Z. Uh, so uh, uh, very happy to uh, f field uh, any queries that anybody might have. Um, uh, I guess I get a lot of emails a day, so uh, I'll try my best to respond as quickly as I can. And I should throw in as well, by the way, to, to, for our listeners, uh, Tim is also a, a regular columnist for Insurance Business New Zealand, uh, and we're very, very proud to have him uh, contribute for us. Uh, Tim, thank you very, very much again for your time. And to everybody listening, uh, we'll try and think of another controversial topic, and we'll talk to you next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.